In James chapter 5, in verse 13, it says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over them, anointing them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. And that's just one of many verses, you know, you can go and look in the Gospels and see the things that Jesus has to say about prayer. He told a parable about a, a widow that was constantly begging a judge. And it says the point of that prayer is that, or that parable was that we should always pray and not lose heart. God declares that prayer works. Prayer is effective. Prayer is powerful. It's essential to our excess in life as Christians. I'm sure everyone is aware of um, what happened in California this past week. And, and I don't really want to talk about that too much, except that it's the foundation of what I want to talk about this week. Um, as those things happened in California, there were many, both public and private, who were saying, were praying for the ones who were victims in this tragedy and for their families and our thoughts are with them. And the very next day, the headline in the New York Daily News was this. I don't know if you can see it. It says, God is not fixing this. And then the subheadlining line is, as the latest batch of innocent Americans are left lying in pools of blood, cowards who could truly end the scourge continue to hide behind meaningless platitudes. And then it becomes a political editorial, so I don't want to talk about that. But just that attitude about prayer. God is not fixing this, and prayer is a waste of time. And in fact, what they're saying is prayer is just a meaningless platitude. Those are just words. And you're using that as an excuse not to actually do something about the problem. How do we look at prayer when we say to one another, I am praying for you? Are we saying that because we believe it's effective? Because it matters? Because it changes things? Or are we saying, I'm praying for you because I don't know what else to do and I'm not really actually going to do anything, so I will say that I'm going to... Do we see it as just a meaningless platitude? That's how the world looks at prayer. And I wonder about that. How do we actually view prayer? What does the Bible actually say about prayer? And I just want to consider three things fairly quickly this morning about what would make prayer ineffective. What would make it meaningless? What would make it a waste of time? And maybe that how, how that applies to how things look sometimes in our life when we pray and nothing happens. Or how things look in a nation or in the world when we're praying about something and nothing seems to be changing and we want to shake our fist at God and say, God, why aren't you doing something about this? Does God not care about evil? Is, is the type of thing that we say. What is it that makes our prayers either effective or ineffective? There is a kind of prayer that is just a platitude, totally ineffective. Staying in the book of James, I think James talks about both of the categories of this kind of prayer. In James chapter 1, in verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. 
for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And that last sentence is, is key. This kind of prayer, he says, is a waste of time. Don't let that person suppose that anything's coming as a result of that prayer. So when talking about wisdom, but I believe you can make a broader application, James says when you pray for wisdom, you have to pray with no doubting. You have to pray believing. When Jesus talks about that, he says when you pray, you have to pray in faith. And if you pray in faith, you can say to this mountain, be removed into the sea, and it'll be removed. Praying without faith is a platitude. It's a waste of time. And so we have to ask ourselves when we pray. How, how do we pray? Do we pray thinking God is going to respond? Do we get up off the couch or wherever it is that you're sitting as you pray, looking to see what the answer is going to be? Do we pray in expectation? And, and if we don't, then it's a waste of time. Don't suppose anything's going to happen as a result of that prayer. Staying in James, in chapter 2, as James talks about the connection between faith and works, Starting in verse 14, he says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. And, and maybe you'll say, well, what does that verse have to do with prayer? Well, maybe I'm reading it wrong, but what I envision here, what I see if, with what James describes, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, and what we're reading in verse 16, doesn't that look like a blessing? May God feed you and clothe you. May the Lord help you in the difficulty that you're having. And James says, if you do that, if you see a brother and sister that is hungry or they're about to lose their house or they're lacking the things daily needed to survive and you have the ability to help them and you say, I'm praying for you and you don't lift a finger to help him. James says, what good is that? That's a waste of time. That's a platitudinous prayer, <laughs> if that's an actual word. It's ineffective. It's without purpose. God calls us to be participators in the things that he's doing. We see that both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Jesus called his disciples, was come and follow me. When Jesus describes the day of judgment in Matthew chapter 25, and he talks about those who visited those who were sick, those who were in prison, those who were naked and hungry, and you clothed and you fed them. He says, as much as you did it to one of the least of these, you did it to me. In Titus, Titus talks about how Christ died to redeem for himself a people of his own who were zealous for good works, for God's works. And so as we pray, we pray as we're stepping out in activity. Allison was talking uh, to us at the table this morning. Is it Acts 3 that you were looking at? Acts chapter 4. I think you see that being reflected in the prayer of the disciples in this chapter. And, and what was happening in Acts chapter 4 is that Peter and John had been imprisoned and they'd been threatened and then they were released and that's kind of a frightening thing. So verse 23 of chapter 4 says, when they had been released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, 
They lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. They continued to speak with boldness. And then as you continue in the next chapter, you see that boldness being carried out in chapter 5 and in chapter 6 and throughout the rest of the book of Acts. And so there's this threat and there's this danger. They don't just say, Lord, please take care of this and then huddle in that place and wait for God to take care of it. They pray and then they go back out to work. And so if we're going to pray, we have to pray with faith. We have to pray and then look for opportunities to act according to the will of God. And if we don't do that, then it is indeed just a platitude. It is just a waste of time, and it is a purposeless prayer. And so we have to keep that in mind as we speak to God. Pray with expectation. Pray looking for opportunities to act. There are also times when God ignores prayers, when he just doesn't listen to the things that people are saying. That's what we saw if you followed along in the reading that Jay did from the book of Jeremiah, chapter 11. And in this chapter, the Lord is telling Jeremiah to pronounce some judgment upon Judah and upon Jerusalem. For example, he says in verse 7, I solemnly warned your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, warning them persistently, even to this day, saying, Obey my voice. Yet they did not obey or incline their ear, but everyone walked in the stubbornness of his evil heart. And therefore, I brought upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did not. Verse 10, They have turned back to the iniquity of their forefathers who refused to hear my words. They have gone after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant that I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, Behold, I am bringing disaster upon them that they cannot escape. Though they cry to me, I will not listen to them. Then the cities of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will go and cry to the gods to whom they make offerings, but they cannot save them in the time of their trouble. For your gods have become as many as your cities, O Judah, and as many as the streets of Jerusalem, the altars you have set up to shame the altars to make offerings to Baal. Therefore, do not pray for this people or lift up a cry or prayer on their behalf, for I will not listen when they call to me in the time of trouble. When a people rejects God, sometimes he shrugs his shoulders and says, go talk to your gods. Go cry to the ones that you've been sacrificing to. Because I'm not listening. I'm not going to help you anymore. 
We'll see that again in the book of Judges. In Judges chapter 10. It seems very similar to what we're reading in Jeremiah. In Judges chapter 10, in verses 7 through 9, you see that both the Philistines and the Ammonites are oppressing the people of Israel. Israel is severely distressed in verse 9. In verse 8, it says they've been crushed and oppressed by the Philistines and the Ammonites and maybe even the Amorites too. In verse 10, it says, the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians and from the Amorites, Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidonians also and the Amalekites and the Manites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved, them out of, saved you out of their hand. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go out and cry to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you. Only please deliver us this day. And in that case, the story has a good ending because they truly repent and they turn away from their idols and they devote themselves to God again. And God relents and saves them. But, but I want us to see this response. In Jeremiah, he says, I will not listen when they pray. I will not help. And they can go cry to their gods, and their gods are not going to listen either. Here in Judges, he, he looks them in the eye. He says, you've rejected me. I've helped you. I've saved you. I've benefited you, and you rejected me. So go call to your gods that you serve. Don't come asking me. What are our gods? As we look at our society, sometimes even as we look at the way you and I actually live, we give lip service to the God of heaven, and we pray to God, but we live as if money is what we rely on. And then when there's a tragedy, when there is a horror, when there is an atrocity that happens, like happened in San Bernardino, Bernardino this past week, what can your money do in the face of evil? And yet can't you see God perhaps saying, go cry out to your money that you've been worshiping. See what it'll do. That's what he did to the Israelites. What can humanistic and secularistic philosophies do in the face of evil? That's part of the problem that we have in our society today is that there are things that are just flat wicked that our philosophy doesn't allow to say it's bad. We're not even allowed to think that it... So then how can you even address it? How can you oppose it? How can you stand up against it? How can our philosophies help? What can relativism accomplish? That's what the politicians talk about. They talk about just radical religion, as if all religions are the same. And any one of them, whether it's a, whether it's a Presbyterian or whether it's anything else, any one of them is, is liable to one day just rise up and commit some crazy act. Is there no difference between religions? But our God of relativism says there's no, no difference. And so then we've got no tools to even address a problem. What can your gods do in these days? That's what God is asking the Israelites. What can humanism accomplish? What gain in times like these does a lifestyle of self-indulgence and depravity offer? 
when wickedness arises around us. And we're so used to just self-indulgence and soft, easy living that we don't even have the capability to stand up and act. And those are our gods. Those are the things we devote ourselves to. And I wonder sometimes if God is not saying, at this point, go pray to your gods. I've helped you. I've saved you. I've delivered you. I've benefited you. And you have rejected me. Why are you asking me for help now? We see God doing that in the Old Testament. So it's not that the prayer is not working. It's that God is saying, I'm not helping. When God's ways and God's solutions are rejected, how then can he be blamed when things fall apart? And yet that's what happens sometimes. How can we expect him to help us while we persist in rebellion? whether we're talking about a nation or whether we're talking about ourselves individually. You've been mad at God, but you haven't been willing to change anything in your life? God's ways are life. God's ways are for our good. His ways constitute the path to peace and to fellowship and to joy on this earth. One of the problems that we have sometimes, even in the church, is we see God's rules as merely the arbitrary rules of a petty God who's out to destroy our good time. Can't do this, can't do that, can't do the other thing, just because God doesn't like it. It's not the kind of God that we have. Rather, he gives us the rules, he gives us the guide, he gives us the instruction, and he's telling us these are the things that really are, and these are the things that really work. And if you want to have a good life, in John 10, Jesus says, I've come so that they can have life and have it abundantly. He's not just talking about heaven. He's talking about a good, happy, joyful, contented life here and now. That's what God's rules are given to us. We can't expect anything to get better in our lives. If we're not going to listen to God's advice. And so then we walk in rebellion, we walk in greed, we walk in wickedness and godlessness, and then we wonder why God's not answering prayer, and we say, well, prayer just doesn't work. And God says, I hear your prayer, but I'm not listening. And I'm not helping. That's what he says in Jeremiah and Judges. And if he can do that to them, are we so special that he wouldn't do that to us when we reject him? in his ways. And then when there's a problem, we say, oh, Lord, save us. And then as soon as the problem's over, we go right back to our wickedness again. Do we think God is stupid? Do we think we can fool him in that way? He says, turn to me, and I'll give you all the help that you need. But reject me, and you're on your own. That's what he said to the Israelites. The same principle applies whether we're talking about a nation or whether we're talking about ourselves personally and individually. You can't ignore God's instructions and then get mad at him when your life is a mess. But that's what we do. Without repentance, a turning away from your former ways and a renewed submission to God, you really can't expect things to get any better. But when we humble ourselves to him and pray in faith, there is no limit to the things that God can do. 
There are those whose prayers God ignores. In 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 12, Peter says, His eye is on the righteous, and his ears are attentive to their prayers. That might be verse 11. Verse 12 says, And his face is set against those who do evil. In Isaiah chapter 52, Isaiah chapter 59. Verse 1 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save, or his ear dull that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood, and your fingers with iniquity. Your lips have spoken lies. Your tongue mutters wickedness. No one enters suit justly. No one goes to law honestly. They rely on empty pleas. They speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. Verse 7, their feet run to evil. They're swift to shed innocent blood and thoughts are thoughts of iniquity. Desolation and destruction are in their highways. The way of peace they do not know. And there is no justice in their paths. They've made their roads crooked. No one who treads on them knows peace. Therefore, justice is far from us, and righteousness does not overtake us. We hope for light and behold darkness and for brightness, but we walk in gloom. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight. Among those in full vigor, we are like dead men. We all growl like bears. We moan and moan like doves. We hope for justice but there is none for salvation, but it is far from us. And that's what we say today, isn't it? We're looking for justice. We're looking for peace. We're looking for a solution. And where is it? And then our answer is God has failed. God must not exist. He must not be real. But the real answer is, Isaiah says, your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. Your sins have hidden his face from you. Verse 12, for our transgressions are multiplied before you. And our sins testify against us, for our transgressions are with us, and we know our iniquities, transgressing and denying the Lord, and turning back from following our God, speaking oppression and revolt, conceiving and uttering from the heart lying words. Why is our society a wreck? Because we've rejected God. And then we wonder why He's not fixing it. If you want prayer to work, you want prayer to be effective in your own life, if you want it to be effective in the broader world, first we have to humble ourselves, turn to God, submit to God, repent of our sins, pray in faith, pray ready to act. And until and unless we're willing to do that, prayer is a waste of time. So on that level, when the secular world says God's not fixing this, they're exactly right. He is not going to fix it while they're busy shaking their fist at God every day. There's not a whole lot we can do about that except to pray for our nation and then go out and work, go out and act, not just to solve society's problems, but to turn people in society to God. If we do that, then that will solve society's problems. And then we can apply the same thing, as we've said, in a smaller way.
you wonder why God doesn't seem to be responding to your prayers. Have you asked the first question? Have I submitted to God? Am I rejecting him in my life? Am I praying in faith? Now, there's a whole another sermon about when God is slow about answering prayers. Sometimes he makes us wait for things. But even righteous Job, first, when disaster comes upon him, first he starts asking, what did I do wrong? And after that examination is over, that's when he starts having other questions. And my point this morning is we need to ask that first question first. You know, before we start thinking about other reasons why God may be not responding, the first question is, are we right with God? And if that's not taken care of, then we need to take care of that. If you want to turn your psalm books to number 303. 